here's how a cooperative comes together. They are a collection of small businesses where a bunch of small businesses realize that if they work collectively and collaboratively, it'll be to the betterment of all than how they could do individually. Our cooperative is owned by these 60 farming families, each one of whom is running their own dairy farm, which is its own business. And some of them are really small, 50 cows, 100 cows, and some of them are much bigger, you know, thousands of cows. Hey folks, I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast that spotlights America's most innovative business leaders who are thriving at the intersection of purpose, profit, and sustainability. Today, I'm talking with Paul Snyder, the Executive Vice President of Stewardship at Tillamook County Creamery Association, a farmer-owned dairy co-op that's helped to pioneer the idea of stakeholder capitalism. Tillamook's high-quality offerings have been an integral part of Oregonian culture for over a century, But in the last few years, the brand has become a household name beyond the Pacific Northwest, with Tillamook's cheeses and, more recently, ice cream being a staple product in grocery stores and homes across the country, mine included. One of the keys to this incredible growth has been Tillamook's values-based corporate mission, which is oriented towards serving all stakeholders from farmers to consumers to the very cows themselves. Paul spent decades honing his leadership abilities in the hotel business, and his executive vision has been instrumental in marketing Tillamook's sustainable practices to the public by spearheading such initiatives as the company's B Corp certification in 2020. Paul is an expert in aligning purpose and profits, and I'm eager to hear more about his unique take on the rise of ESG, his lessons from the agricultural community, and the fascinating history of one of our nation's most famous co-ops. All right, let's get started. Let's just start at the beginning. Give us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So uh, I grew up just outside Chicago in the northern suburbs there. So if you think any John Hughes movie you've ever seen, those were all filmed (laughs) where I grew up. From there, uh, after I graduated high school, I went to Lawrence University, which is in upstate Wisconsin. I went there because at the time I was really big into music. And so I was thinking about pursuing a double major in music and some liberal arts, but ended up just uh, settling on English literature. And so that was my major. After graduating from college, my first job was I worked on political campaigns for a number of years. And then when I was around uh, 25 or so, decided that I didn't want to do that anymore. Everybody who works campaigns at the time, even when you're in your 40s, you were still living out of your car. You never saw your family. So I was like, okay. It's a hard life. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I don't know how I had the foresight at 25 to go, maybe I don't want to be doing this at 40. That's not a typical 25-year-old like horizon, (laughs) right? So I actually uh, ended up moving back home to my folks' place as I tried to figure out what was next. And my dad said, look, this is your home. This is always your home. But you're not just going to sit in the basement and contemplate your next big career move. Just get out and do something while you're figuring it out. So I had bartended a bit. So I decided to start bartending. And that actually got me into the hotel business. I ended up bartending at a Holiday Inn outside Chicago. And that started a 20 or 25-year run in the hotel business. Worked my way up on property and Eventually came to a crossroads where I was either going to be a general manager of a hotel or I would go to corporate. But again, I had an English major. So I'd never taken an accounting class or marketing class or finance class. And so I said, well, I better get that stuff covered off. So I went to Cornell and got an MBA at Cornell. And the benefit there was I wanted to stay in the hotel business. And of course, Cornell has the best hotel school in the world. So I got an MBA, but I took lots of classes from the hotel school. From there, I went to Marriott. For a couple of years and then from Merritt, I went to Intercontinental Hotels Group, which is the master franchisor for 
Intercon, Holiday Inn, Crown Plaza, and a bunch of other brands. And was there for about uh, 14 years or so, and then ultimately left there and then ended up here at the Tillamook County Creamery Association. So that's the path. It seems like folks have a, a romanticized version of what it would be to be in the hotel industry or to have your own little boutique hotel somewhere on you know the beach in Mexico. What's the reality like? Yeah, look, the hotel business is what I would call it's very dramatic. The highs are really high, and man, the lows can be very low. You're exactly right. I know no people go, ah, I'd like to retire and just run a boutique hotel. I'm going, that's not retiring. <laughs> but it's it's an incredible, it's an incredible thrill to meet people from around the world, to travel around the world as part of the industry. That's yeah. a lot of fun, but at the same time, it's not for everyone. It can be a really brutally tough job, you know, dealing with, you know, either a tough guest or quite frankly, the, the travel industry is really highly attuned to swings in the economy. So like when we go through the 2008 crisis or COVID and all the rest of it, man, that's those are really, really tough times for hotels. So it is fun. It is a really engaging industry. I had a great time in it and really grew uh, wonderfully in it, taught me a ton. And, and it was there that you kind of started to dip your toe into the waters of sustainability and, and corporate responsibility. How did that process unfold? I had a job at one point standing up what was essentially a B2B branding marketing exercise where, where we were selling Intercontinental Hotel Group's management offerings so that you could hire the company to manage your hotel as well as brand your sure. hotel. And as part of that, at one point, you know, I, I had some time on my hands and, and I had a boss that said, well, you know, you're smart, figure out a way to fill it productively. And so uh, actually that led to uh, probably one of the very first broad-based efforts around sustainability that was done in the company, which was a lighting retrofit. I mean, I didn't even talk about to the owners about doing something green. I basically went to them and said, would you like to spend $400,000 to save $1.2 million a year in energy? And they said, yes, please. And, you know, that was a really, that was a really meaningful lesson to me on a number of levels. First of all, that there was such great econ economics with regard to some of these some of these efforts. But then what it was my first real lesson in something that has I've learned time and time or seen time and time again, which is there's an alchemy around the corporate responsibility work that the benefits that actually are driven by your efforts are above and beyond not just what you hoped, but they're broader than what you conceive. So in this lighting retrofit, you know, we hit our benchmarks for both what we wanted to save in terms of energy, what we wanted to save in terms of dollars, what we wanted to save in terms of carbon. But what we also noticed is, you know, when we put in the CFLs, getting out the incandescents, this is 2006, so of course now everybody's sure. LEDs. When we put in the CFLs, you know, one of the things that we noticed was that the rooms were underlit, you know, and the reason for that is over time, the engineers were trying to save money. So they would swap out 100 watt bulbs for 60 watt bulbs and 60 watt bulbs for 20 watt bulbs over time. And so the rooms just started to become dimmer. Right. And so we actually then lit the rooms with the CFLs to their specs. Actually, the International Association of Lighting Engineers, real institution, <laughs> tells you how much candle power you should have around a desk or a bed or a bathroom. And so we actually lit it properly. Still massive energy uh, carbon savings. And I remember we took one of the brand managers through a test room that we did because, you know, of course, as a brand manager, he wanted to make sure that we weren't degrading the guest experience. Yeah. So we take him into the first room. Okay, here's the old incandescents. Take him into the next room. Here's the CFLs with the equivalent luminosity to the incandescents. He's like, oh, yeah, this looks, this looks perfectly fine. Yeah, no problem. Go ahead. I said, hold on a second. Let's go to the next room, which is CFLs with the proper lighting. And he's like, it looks like we've put $10,000 into the room. The colors popped. The room just looked better. And so when we did this retrofit, we got, as I said, we got the economics. We got the carbon. 
But what we also got was a pop in customer satisfaction of about four or five points with room decor. There's always a kind of an Easter egg in these efforts. That's something unexpected that comes your way that's a benefit. And that was my first lesson in that, that there's always this surprise coming. So that was how I started. And it was fun and, you know, it was really impactful for the business. And so, you know, of course, my boss liked it. So he's like, well, take some more of that if you've got it. And so that really started me on the journey. <laughs> and then how did you end up at Tillamook? So after I left IHG, I said, well, let's try consulting for a while just to see what that world was like to be on the agency side as opposed to the client side. And so I was doing that and had a good little business going. Um, but, you know, there's sort of missed having a team and running a team and kind of got funny as it sounds, got tired of the sound of my own voice and saying the same thing to clients all the time and stuff like that. And so it just so happened as right as I was thinking, OK, maybe it's time to uh, shift back from consulting into something else. This opportunity at Tillamook came along. My wife actually uh, heard about the job first, and she said, this job sounds like it was written for Paul Snyder. And so I said, OK, I better pay attention to that. And so here came Tillamook, which was, you know, at the time, you know, over 112 years old, or I guess 110 years old. And um, it's, you know, an institution in the Pacific Northwest, and it's growing. And they have this stewardship position that sits on the executive committee. And that was one of the things that I really wanted to make sure that I did with my next opportunities. If I was going to run the corporate responsibility umbrella, I wanted to run it from the executive committee for a couple of reasons. Number one, as a CR leader uh, in any company, it's easier for me to make the case with executives than to train my executive sponsor to make the case. But also it was an indication to me that if that position is sitting on the executive committee, then that tells you something about the company. Yeah, they take it seriously. Yeah, so it just, it hit on all of those things I was looking for. And also, the, I guess the last thing I would point to is, you know, I'd been in hotels again for 20, 25 years, which was a service business and, you know, a commercial building business. And here now I'm going to agriculture and cows um, and food manufacturing. So it's like, hey, you know, all right, so I'm 50 years old. Let's try something new and learn something new. And that's been really, really challenging, thrilling, scary, and invigorating. So for all those reasons, Tillamook was just a great opportunity, and I'm, I'm so glad that I took it. I want to hear about the, the comparisons between those two very different sectors and how you connect the dots in a second. But I want to go back to something you just said. So you, you joined this 110-year-old company. Give us the history, because I know that Tillamook has a really rich history. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's a 114-year-old cooperative. We are owned by the farmer members of the Tillamook County Creamery Association. So there are about 60 or so farming families that own this cooperative. It was founded in 1909 in Tillamook County. And so for those that don't know, Tillamook County is out on the coast of Oregon. In between Tillamook County and Portland, there's a bit of a mountain range, not one of the big ones, but, you know, a big enough one. So it just so happens that Tillamook County is on an alluvial plain, which means that it's just the perfect place to grow grass for cows to feed on to make really great quality milk. So a bunch of really intrepid folks went out there. They started dairying out in Tillamook County. But then, of course, where do they sell the milk? It's very hard to get it over the mountain at the time. And really what became kind of a hallmark of a lot of things about our culture and our company they did something that was really community-based. A bunch of farmers got together and said, let's invest in finding a way to sell our milk and let's do it cooperatively, let's do it collaboratively. So they created the cooperative. They then started making cheese. And then the next thing they did was they bought a boat called the Morningstar and they put a bunch of cheese on the boat and the boat went up the coast and went down the Columbia River and then to the Willamette River to Portland. And that was great. So, okay, we've got a business now. Of course, the next time, I think it was the very next trip, the boat sank. So then they had to build another boat. But that really started the cooperative that, you know, they had this unbelievably high quality milk 
they converted it to cheese and then they sold the cheese. And that's how really the, the company got started and the, and the brand started. So fast forward now to call it 2010 or so, 2010, 2012. At this point, Tillamook is, has grown. Uh, at the point, it's about a four or $500 million business. It's got 80% household penetration in the Pacific Northwest. So the joke is every home has got both running water and Tillamook. Everybody in the Pacific Northwest grew up going and visiting our creamery in Tillamook and, you know, having ice cream or cheese there. And, and so we're really kind of a Pacific Northwest institution. And our farmer member owners decide, well, maybe we can share this goodness beyond the Pacific Northwest. And so uh, they brought on board a new CEO, my boss, Patrick Kreitzer. Patrick, along with a talented team of folks that uh, both here at the company that he also brought into the company, started a uh, strategy called Win the West to see how we could actually export Tillamook goodness to other states out here in the West. And so from that point, we now have been pushing east of the Rockies and distributing into the Midwest, into South Central, Southeast, Northeast. And that has been incredibly successful. We're actually, we've got the fastest growing cheese in the country. We've got the fastest growing family size ice cream in the country. Just in the last 13 weeks became the best selling cheddar in the country. Commercially, we're doing fantastically, you know, 20% growth last year. So it's a, it's a 114 year old startup in terms of what it feels like in terms of our rocket ship up. But let me pause there and say, as we extended ourselves to the east, we started growing as a company, we realized that while people in the Pacific Northwest knew that we were farmer-owned and knew that we were values-based, knew that our farmer owners from the founding in 1909 thought about community, thought about environment and ecosystems, thought about the employees, beyond the Pacific Northwest, how do people know that? How, how can they know that? How do we let people know that we're values-based? So a couple things happened in order to help that along. Number one, in 2017, our board voted into effect a stewardship charter. That stewardship charter basically directs management to take a stakeholder approach to the business, not a shareholder or an owner approach to the business. And this is in 2017. This is years before the business roundtable or other folks started talking about this. They directed management to think about six stakeholders the cows, the farms, the ecosystems, the consumers, the employees and the communities, when we make all of our decisions. So this idea of stakeholder capitalism is something that our company has practiced from its founding in 1909, but put into policy in 2017. When I saw that that was the case here for this company, that they actually put it into policy, it wasn't just, hey, we're committed to this, or it's in policy. That to me was really kind of amazing. And I was also very impressed that, you know, I think a lot of people look at rural-based companies or agriculture-based companies and feel that they're either, you know, not on the bleeding edge of innovation or forward thinking. And here are the farmers out in Tillamook County embracing stakeholder capitalism and putting it into policy long before a lot of people are even thinking about it. So that's, so that's number one. The other thing was that we decided to go for B Corp certification because that's a very rigorous certification. And it's something that once we, we felt we were really very close to achieving because of a lot of hard work we had done governed by the values of the company for 114 years and then further directed by the stewardship charter. We had to do some work to get it, but we were largely already there. And then so that we got B Corp certification that is a, a certification that we can put on our labels and you'll see it in our labels. These things we have decided to do because they already reflect who we were as a cooperative. We were already doing these approaching business in these ways. And by uh, by having a stewardship charter and by being B Corp certified, we let people outside the Pacific Northwest know that we're a values-based enterprise and we think more than just about the profits of the company. And so 
that's the history of the company to date. And now we're looking ahead and the growth is still happening and the stewardship charter is still delivering and there's lots of stuff to do. And so, again, it's exciting, thrilling and scary at the, all at the same time in some respects. And it sounds like you draw a direct connection between that stewardship and the B Corp decision and the growth, that those things are not necessarily unrelated. No, in fact, I, I would say that our stewardship posture and policy and our B Corp certification are things that, quite frankly, as all things in, in corporate responsibility that realm tend to do, they make you perform better as a business. They grow the top line because they increase customer preference. They cut expense out either in terms of, you know, energy waste, water costs or whatever you do there, but also, you know, you engage your employees more. So therefore you lower turnover costs, which are a huge cost to the business. So you add all those things together and then you have a more profitable business. So for my way of thinking and you know, don't take it from me. Look at any of the studies that, you know, all the, you know, the big brains have done, whether consulting firms or in academia, when you embrace whatever you call it, ESG, corporate responsibility, those types of things, those companies that really integrate those elements into their strategy are doing so to the benefit of their business in every possible way. It is not a detractor from the business in any way. So, in fact, I would say that increasingly having a meaningful ESG strategy or values-based strategy or stakeholder uh, policy are increasingly going to be what separates the high-performing companies from the less highly-performing companies increasingly going forward. Yeah. I want to go back to the story of the boat because I think that there's an incredible metaphor there, both for startups, even though it was, you know, over a century ago, but particularly for the agricultural community. Like, what resilience to find a solution, experience a, a failure or a setback, and then just find another solution. Just go for it again. Like that, I, I love that story because it's so, it's so symbolic of everything I know of farmers and ranchers in America. But also, it's, it's a great metaphor for startups. And I love that those two things collide in Tillamook. Yeah, it's, you know, look, I am a city boy and I learn from our farmers every day about being a better business person, about being a better leader. They don't throw anything away on farms. If something's not working, all right, put it over to the side there in a the shed because you never know when you might need a part from it or a piece from it or something you can use from it. That resiliency they talk about is just amazing in terms of you know, our farmers right now out on the coast are dealing with a lot of rain. It rains, you know, over 100 inches on the coast anyway. In the last couple of years, there's been a tremendous amount of rain, which means it's hard for them to cut grass that they turn into feed. And it's amazing how they just they just weather through that and they find a way to keep these very complex operations in business and thriving. And, you know, the other thing that that is amazing is the way they come together as a community. So, you know, we had a bunch of forest fires out there. Everybody dropped what they were doing and came together as a community to help support each other. We had uh, one of our farmer members uh, pass away and other farmers came to help the family cut grass, milk the cows and everything. You know, it's, it's the way that they really come together as a community when somebody is in need. There's no organizing. It's not done by a nonprofit. It just happens. It's really kind of amazing, inspiring and educational to see. Do you remember back to your early days at Tillamook in the last few years, were there any moments, experiences, stories with farmers that just stand out like, okay, we're, we're no longer in hotel world. We're in agriculture community. We're in farm community now. Yeah. Oh, there are lots of them. Um, <laughs> I mean, dairy farms can be muddy. So the first time I went out and I had my you know big rubber boots on and I put my jeans on over the outside of them and the farmer says, uh, jeans go inside the boots, pal. I'm like, okay. You know, one, I, I'll never forget one of our 
current member's father. And again, our business is multi-generational. So the people that are owning the business now and running the business now and serving on our board of directors now, their fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers and mothers served on the board and ran the business too. So this, I was visiting one of our member owners and I met his father. And of course, I knew that he had, you know, at one point was chairman of the board in the past and others. And so I, I did as I did with a lot of people when I was being, I said, sir, do you have any advice for me? And he just sort of looked at me and squinted a little bit and said, do a good job and work hard. I was like, that's it. That was, that was his advice. I'm going, you know what? That's pretty good advice. Do you, do I really need more than that? So I remember that the other, the last lesson I would point to that is one that all of us who, I mean, we all eat and all of us need to really get our heads wrapped around when it comes to the food we eat and where it comes from is for some reason, agriculture in general, dairy in particular, is the one place where either having scale or technology is not what people want or think is cool. People think about agriculture in a much more pastoral way. And so going to farms and looking at some of the technology in there, I mean, I'm talking with a farmer as he's washing uh, one of his trucks with a garden hose and on his phone, he's looking at the milk futures in the Middle East because it has an impact on, on milk prices here. We've got a lot of farms that have got robotic milkers, which means, guess what? The cows get milked when the cows want it. When they want to get milked, they walk to the the milker. The robotic milker does it all, and then they and then they go on. That's wild. It's incredibly cool. They're the automatic, you know, feeders. These like they look like Daleks from Doctor Who. For those of you that know that, <laughs> they're these like basic pods that go up and down the barn, distributing feed for the cows. And so, seeing the amount of technology and the financial sophistication of the people that are running these businesses was eye-opening for me. And it's something that that I continue to uh, continue to learn from this day. It's funny. I was just about to ask you what are the biggest misconceptions that people that you think Americans have about rural America and agricultural America, it seems like that might be, that might just answer the question. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a lesson for all of us. You know, again, one of our stakeholders are healthful cows. The farmer member owners have directed this company to make sure that our cows are healthy and well taken care of. And the thing is you can take care of a cow and make it healthy and comfortable, whether it's in a small farm, a medium farm or a big farm. And so there's a little bit of this conception that smaller is better. And one of the things I've learned is smaller is not better and large is not worse. It has to do with the quality of the management practices and the quality of the managers. And so that's really what determines these things. There's one other thing actually I would point out is Mother Nature in her incredibly good and great wisdom did something with cows. When cows are relaxed, when they are comfortable, their components are higher. It means higher quality milk. There's more fat, there's more protein. And so she actually set up that dairy farmers are incented to make sure that their cows are healthy and comfortable because quite frankly, they get paid more. Everybody pays on the components. And so I think there are people that wonder, you know, well, are the cows really being taken care of or are the farmers being greedy? Those two things are in conflict. If a farmer wants money, they're going to treat the cow better. These are some of the things that, again, you don't really get exposed to or really know about very much until you have the fortune to come work for the Tillamook County Creamery Association in some respect. Yeah. And we see the word cooperative or association a few times in, in agricultural businesses in America, but you don't see it much beyond that very often, or, if you, or you don't recognize it as easily, I think, beyond the brands that we know in food. What is it about the cooperative model that's interesting? Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, so here's how a cooperative you know, essentially comes together. They are a collection of small businesses. 
it's where a bunch of small businesses realize that if they work collectively and collaboratively, it'll be to the betterment of all than how they could do individually. So our cooperative is owned by the 60 farming families, each one of whom is running their own dairy farm, which is its own business. And some of them are really small, 50 cows, 100 cows, and some of them are much bigger, you know, thousands of cows. Land O'Lakes is a cooperative, so they can be huge, where I guess would be a, a small to mid-sized cooperative. There's some much smaller cooperatives. Now, the businesses are independent from the cooperative, so the only legal agreement between the cooperative and the business itself is, for us, the milk agreement. You know, so you're going to ship us milk, we're going to pay you this for milk. And, I, you know, I, most of the cooperatives are set up in the same way. And then your board is populated by members of the cooperative. So, you know, it's it's no joke. We've got just this last week we had a board meeting and there are members of our board that came straight from their tractors or their dairy barns into the boardroom. We had a board meeting and once the board meeting was over, they went right back into the dairy barn. We've got a couple of uh, board advisors, a lot of cooperatives do, for particular skills and viewpoints that are needed in the boardroom. They kind of act like independent directors that uh, – would be in other companies, but they're non-voting. So, yeah, that's how the that's how the cooperative works, and it's um, it is interesting. It's I will say that um, you know the differences between my last company, which was a shareholder-owned company, publicly traded, and, and this company, since the board is in the business, right? They're daring all day. They're thinking about that, so they're you know they're really really deeply ingrained in the business itself. But at the same time, in, in some ways, they, there's a similarity that our owners, this is their life. This is not a job. This is a lifestyle for them. This is a life choice for them. Same way with hotel franchisees. And just like hotel franchisees, dairy farmers, it's a family business. Somebody, somebody in the family is doing the books. Other people are you're cutting the grass. Other people are running the milk barn. And that's very not unlike a hotel franchise where somebody's running reservations and somebody else is doing sales and somebody else is you know running the property and housekeeping. So, uh, yeah, that's that's sort of how I think about what I've learned about in terms of cooperatives. Um, uh, there's a lot that's some things that are different, but a lot that's similar. Yeah. Before we jump into talking about like sustainability and, and aligning profit and purpose, I do want to just do a couple more questions. And the first is, you guys have, from what I've read, introduced more new products over the last five years than the preceding 50. <laughs> There's a lot of new products coming out of Tillamook. And uh, it's pretty exciting. But I'm going to ask you to pick your favorite product, your favorite child in the Tillamook family. Yeah, that's totally unfair. Um, uh... <laughs> I'm pretty excited to see the ice cream sandwiches hit the shelves. I'm going to be honest. The ice cream sandwiches are what I've been um, uh, yeah, most the, excited the about. The chocolate peanut butters recently. are great. Yeah, those are great. Um, uh, look, I'm just going to have to fess up and say our mudslide chocolate is fantastic and all the rest of it. But our Maker's Reserve cheddars are to die for. I mean, they're just amazing. These are cheddars that we actually age over the course of depending, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. They're as delicious as any cheese that you'd get out of the cheese case at Whole Foods or any or someplace else. It's just yeah. It's just incredible stuff. Um, and then I'd also be remiss if I didn't talk about, we have a cream cheese line and we've got a cream cheese flavor that's honey jalapeno that honestly, some people are just eating with a spoon. Forget the bagel. We don't need it. Just eat, eat it. It's so good. So we've got lots of new products. You know, fundamentally, we're biggest part of our business is our cheese. Um, that's what we're known for. And that's what we continue to really press every day. But yeah, we've got these other really great tasting dairy products we're awfully proud of also. It's an awful lot of fun. Are there any that you're excited about that are publicly known that, that are coming out soon or seasonal flavors we can look forward to later in the summer or in the fall? Yeah, people should start seeing in um, in the ice cream case our Neapolitan, which is just 
fantastic. And so it's really cool. I don't want to I don't want to ruin the surprise, but just when you open up the lid, you're going to see Neapolitan in sort of a different way in terms of the way that it's in the container than it has been for a lot of other uh, executions of Neapolitan and just the all three flavors stand on their own is just absolutely delicious. And then you put them together. Perfect. So let's let's jump into um, one of my passions, which is how businesses can do good for the world and, and do well. And I think Tillamook certainly as a B Corp has already proven its vision and, and, and mission is to do that. But I wanted to just get your take on you know the mission statement in general. Like you, you start from a place that focuses on stakeholders, as you mentioned. Why do you think that works? What is it about stakeholder capitalism that works? Well, I, I point to the first part is because it always has. There's some people that sort of look at some of this stuff and say, well, this is all new. And it's actually, if you look back in time, it really kind of isn't. If you're ever in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, go to the city of Amsterdam Museum and watch the history of Amsterdam. Now, Amsterdam for centuries has been a commercial capital and they've done big things. I mean, they've reclaimed however many you know hectares of land from the sea, but you know they've been a commercial capital forever. So you think, well, they're just about making money. But if you look about how they're, they ran Amsterdam from I don't know, like the 13, 1400s going right up to today, like very much with a stakeholder mentality. How do we take care of the poor? What do we do about the community? What do we do about widows and orphans and all those types of things? And that was part of what made them commercially successful. They would not have been as commercially successful if they hadn't taken that stakeholder approach. So this goes back centuries. Yeah. But even in, you know, even in, in more close in times, the fact is, is that we've had people that have been thinking about community and, and orienting themselves around stakeholders as well as shareholders for a long time. And so right up into today, for me, it's not in our approach here. It's not so much that you can be good and do good business. It is if you want to do a great business, you, you do these things. These things help your business. They help you perform so that, you know, we can stand up right in front of anyone and say, if you just want a really super awesomely performing business, here we are. Don't look at anything about uh, our stewardship chart, all the rest of it. Anybody would look at our business and our growth, the growth we've had in market share and customer preference and the kind of relationships we have with our retail partners. And anybody would say, they're just awesome at business. But it's this part uh, of the stakeholder approach, it's our stewardship that helps make that true. That wouldn't be true without, you know, when we go to, you know, when we go to a partner like Kroger and we're working with them on, hey, you know, why don't you go from one door of ice cream to two or why don't you go from 15 sets of uh, cheese to 30 or that type of thing. And then they say, well, will you come in on our 10 by 20 by 30 waste initiative? Because they know that that's the kind of company we are. So we are a better partner to them. So the reason why this works, it always has. And there are people that I think have this zero-sum mentality that, okay, how much do I need to do so I don't get into trouble? How much money do I have to donate so I don't get into trouble? They're taking a wrong approach to it, not realizing that there's a multiplier effect from the dollars and the time and the resource and the attention that you put into stewardship, corporate responsibility, sustainability, governance, all the rest of it. There's a return on that money that is incredibly positive. And I would argue that there may be some companies that in the short term can outperform an ESG-oriented company, but not over the long term. And that long term is not 20 years. That long term might be five. There's always a way to sort of rapaciously make money today without thinking about tomorrow. But if you want to be a sustainable and resilient business over even just a short to medium term, this kind of stuff matters to your performance. We could spend hours going through the sustainability initiatives and, and general social responsibility initiatives at Tillamook. But I'm curious... If there are any that you're most proud of that have been kind of your your baby bringing forward and what those would look like. 
Yeah, there are a couple that I can think of. One that I'm enormously proud of, not just in terms of the impact we had, but the fact that we did it and the way that we did it was our response to COVID. So when COVID happened, a lot of businesses really were very stressed. Our business was stressed, but the fact was, is with people cooking at home and all the rest of it, our business actually uh, started to go up. We actually pulled forward some of our growth People were just buying more cheese. I don't know if they were stress eating ice cream or whatever, but our, you know, we were we were doing very well. Guilty, guilty, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, but it helped, right? Um, it, it did, hundred percent. It helps all of us. But as our business not only didn't decline but started to grow a bit, the company said, "Well, if we do well, every one of our stakeholders gets to do well. It's not just us." Right. So governed by that principle, as we went through COVID, there are just so many examples of how that came into force. So, for instance, I mentioned before, we have a visitor center out on the coast. It's the second most visited tourist site in the state of Oregon, over a million visitors a year. Of course, we had to shut that down at the beginning of COVID. We did not lay off a single worker because we said, again, the company is doing well. So those workers were either retasked to jobs in the plant or other parts of the business. A lot of them were retasked to do uh, to make masks. If you remember those days where people were in sewing machines and doing masks and all the rest of them. And others, quite frankly, were just put on a beach a little bit if we couldn't find exactly something for them to do. But the fact was is that nobody got laid off from this company. Even as the company was doing well, if certain parts had to essentially be shuttered for a little while, love that. We all, Our farmer owners also committed us to a $4 million COVID response. Now we already have as an annual KPI to donate 4% of our net income to the community. And that's something that we've done over the last number of years. But with that $4 million benchmark, that almost tripled that commitment. And we did some really super innovative things with it. We did some you know, very obvious things. We donated a ton to food banks because uh, during COVID, a lot, a lot of people um, might be aware that you know, food insecurity doubled in a lot of places in the country during COVID. So we donated almost or just over a million dollars worth of product. We also did some things within our local community. We actually gave money directly to local businesses. The other one that I, I would that I'm very, very proud of and also, you know, very, very daunted by is last year, our board endorsed a 30% reduction in our greenhouse gases by 2030, all three scopes. And, you know, we have, we, along with a lot of the dairy industry have committed ourselves to a net zero commitment by 2050, but 2050 is a long time from now, you know, I'm going to be having soup for dinner every night by the time 2050 comes around. And so our farmer owners said, well, you know, having an interim target to sharpen our focus and to really show that we're on a glide path to that achievement is important. And so they endorsed that 30 by 30 commitment. And that's a that's a big deal. That's that's a lot of work we've got ahead of us. We're already starting to get get some things done on it. It was just last year and it's against a 2020 baseline. But I was incredibly proud to be part of a company that said it's not just scope one and two, but scope one, two, and three, and that we're on this very meaningful glide path and track to improve our carbon performance on an absolute basis. So, you know, what that means is we not only have to negate from our 2020 level, but again, we're growing. So we have to negate all of the increased carbon the and GHGs that are associated with our growth and go down from there. So that's that's a big deal. And that that kind of um, that kind of ambition and responsibility is, again, thrilling and engaging and motivating and scary. Yeah. Yeah. You'd mentioned early on the difference in coming from the hotel industry into ag, but I'm curious if you see any sustainability comparisons or, or what are the kind of similarities that you might be able to pinpoint and say, what's happening here is interesting relative to what's happening over there, or these are things we could take from this industry and move to the other in either direction. Yeah. I mean, 
I think the most mature of, if you think about the three pillars of sustainability between energy, waste, and water, the most mature is probably, you know, energy. So that, you know, there's just such a huge toolkit of things you can do around your energy-related footprint. And so a lot of those strategies are easily translatable from the commercial build environment, a hotel, into a factory. So we have vats that we make the cheese in that we've got to do what's called CIP or cleaning in place. Well, we need to heat water for that, just like we need to heat water in the hotel industry for everybody's showers. So, you know, there's, yeah, there's a lot of those technologies that kind of cross over. Uh, there's stuff with regard to waste and food waste. Uh, there was a great initiative that was done that was around food waste and water waste at the Intercontinental Boston. They had a, a wet waste compactor. So if you think about all the wet waste associated with food, this compactor would essentially squeeze the water out of it because, of course, they were getting charged by the city of Boston or whoever their, uh, their waste hauler was by the weight. So when you squeeze that, you get the water out of it. And they, then they use the water to water, it's gray water essentially. And they use the water with all of the organic matter there for the flower beds and grass around there. So of course that also helped, you know, all those nutrients are there and they didn't have to take water off the grid. So water's big there, but that's how they, you know, they leveraged food waste to something there. We did the same, you know, something similar. We have, we're very efficient with our plant operations. It's 1% or lower in terms of what we call food scrap, scrap that comes off the manufacturing and make process. And we diverted almost a million pounds of that last year that had a big impact both on our footprint and obviously in food waste. So some of those things sort of cross over. Um, what's really different is, you know, the only thing that I had to worry about in terms of dirt in the ground was the flower beds and the lawns around hotels. You know, here we've got obviously Dairyland and we've got the challenge of how do we do either regenerative agriculture or agricultural practices that help that help make the land more uh, productive from an eco perspective. And so the, yeah, there's some things that are similar, a lot that's different. The, the biggest difference, though, is there are very few things that are actually carbon sinks on Earth. Right. So the ocean can be a carbon sink and uh, forests can be a carbon sink and agricultural lands can be carbon sinks. They can sequester carbon. So there's something very different and exciting about how do we actually go from being somewhat part of the problem, we are admitting greenhouse gases uh, that we've got to deal with, to potentially being part of the solution. Can we soak some of that carbon up, uh, some of those greenhouse gases up in order to mitigate impacts on the climate? So those are the similarities and differences. It feels like regenerative agriculture or more sustainable farming methods are getting a foothold and, and you're hearing more and more folks in agriculture and in, in farming communities interested in in it. I'm curious if you're seeing that among your farmer owners and what, you know, how they're thinking about this potential shift and, you know, potential incentives along with that to move in a more sustainable farming direction. Yeah, I would say that the farmers have, have been there for years. Cover cropping is something that farmers have done from time immemorial in some respects, right? So, yeah. um, you know, the fact is, is that farmers aren't waking up to regenerative agriculture, however that's defined, and there are lots of different definitions about it. It's other people. So like, it's like the government getting, waking up to these types of uh, techniques and then wanting to incent them and stuff like that. So what I would say is from where I sit, our farmers, uh, and I think farmers in general, are ahead of just about anybody else in understanding what these practices are, how they get executed and what they actually do than most everybody else. They've been, they've been working the land for generations. Uh, and so that it's, it's the rest of us to a certain extent that are catching up to, to farmers. Sure. You mentioned it a little bit earlier, but uh, there is a discussion in the public policy circles right now around ESG, and it's heating up in certain places around the country. And I think your perspective is really important. I mean, the whole anti-ESG movement is predicated upon a falsehood, and it's just so ridiculous. So the, what the anti-ESG people are saying is that 
You should only care about servicing the shareholders. You should only care about profits. That's all you should care about. Now, if you believe that, fine, meaning that a business should only service its shareholders. If that's true, then you're pro-ESG. If you think that the, the fundamental uh, role of any company is to maximize the value to its owners, then you are pro-ESG. And why do I say that? Well, because, again, by every study that's been done by any consultancy or anybody in academia, ESG improves business performance. ESG leads to higher margins by around 3%, uh, a Bain study showed. ESG lowers the cost of capital by about 10%, a McKinsey study showed. Um, MSCI, which is you know a publicly traded financial advisory firm, said that companies with high ESG ratings show above market valuation and profitability. So if you are about maximizing the value of an enterprise, then you are pro-ESG because, in fact, the best-performing companies are stakeholder-driven, and the shareholders will benefit from that stakeholder orientation. Uh, so that's what I would say that that group. ESG is, at its core, long-term risk management, which is half of what capital markets need to be focused on at their core, you know, and so I like your perspective. I think it's it's needs to be out there more often, which is why I made sure to ask the question. Well, that's I mean, this is this is strategic, as you said, it's a strategic risk management. And I don't think there's anybody that would argue that perhaps, for instance, British Petroleum should have been paying attention to what was going on in the Gulf before what happened there, or that Norfolk Southern should have been thinking about what was happening with its trains before we had that environmental disaster there. I don't think anybody would argue that companies should have had better policies with respect to the way that women are treated or minorities are treated uh, in there because companies have lost millions and maybe even billions of dollars in lawsuits because they weren't paying attention to those equity dynamics. I don't think anybody would argue that maybe Enron or First Republic Bank, or any of these other banks that, you know, three of the four biggest four bank failures have happened since March. Is anybody going to argue that they should have had better governance? Right, right. The most ardent capitalists would say they should have had better governance. So, yeah, so the, and the fact was is that all of those entities and a whole host more weren't engaging in long-term risk management against these strategic issues that had a very huge impact on the shareholders. And the shareholders lost money. The stakeholders lost value. So, again, it's such a false premise to say that – Companies will be valued more or will end up being more valuable to the people that own them if you're against ESG. Again, the exact opposite is true. Yeah. And the governance example is so prescient right now. I mean, it, you can draw a, a direct line from almost every major corporate high-profile failure to a failure in governance over the last few years. What motivates you to get up every morning and do what you do? First of all, I get to work with an incredibly great team. Um, when I, you know, again, I changed industries and a lot of people back in Atlanta where I was living and back in the hotel industry where I'd worked said, oh, well, what's it like working at Tillamook? And I said, I get to work with these incredibly smart people who've got these incredibly great hearts. You know, what more could anyone ask for in terms of a place to go and work and spend uh, their working life on a day-to-day -day basis? So that's, that. I just get motivated day-to-day -day by the people that I get to work with. The fact is I, I'm one of those people that believes that capitalism is all about harnessing human potential to the good or to its ill. And that so much about what has advanced our world and its people over the last 500 years uh, or so, capitalism was right at the heart of it. Whether it's the heart of new drugs that are getting developed that actually help you know, alleviate pain and suffering, or new industries that get developed that give people a chance to gain employment and opportunity to lift themselves out of from one situation to another. Capitalism, when deployed rightly, has been the greatest singular force for good um, that, that I can point to. Similarly, 
when it's deployed poorly, or if it's crony capitalism or kleptocracy or all the rest of the type of thing, then bad stuff happens. Values destroyed and people's lives are negatively impacted. So I'm motivated by the fact that there's this incredibly potent engine of human impact. And I'm motivated by the part that I hopefully can play in working with a team to actually have it deliver positively to humanity. And I finally, I would say, and it does, and we can. So when we sit here and we look at what's going on in the climate or we go on with what's going on in society and all the challenges we have, the fact is, is that time and time and time and time and time again, there have been things in front of us as a species that we've got, oh, how can we possibly take that on? How can we possibly deliver on that? And yet we have. The advances we've made in education. Um, there's a great book I love called Factfulness, and it talks about the percentage of high school women on earth in the 1940s and 50s who had a high school education and was somewhere, if I recall, in the high teens versus now where it's in the 90s. That's worldwide. We went to the moon. You know, we the Cubs won the series. The fact is anything that's impossible, you know, <laughs> the fact is we found a way when we finally got it motivated to actually do something about it. For me, the fight when it comes to climate, I believe that we are going to solve the climate crisis. I believe we are not going to go extinct. But I also believe that we're late and it's getting later. So for me, the fight when it comes to climate in particular, which is you know, obviously one of the biggest focuses of my job, is not the fight about whether we'll die or not. Certainly, if we don't do something about it, we will die. But for me, it's like, how late are we going to be? And how early can we be? Um, and that's what kind of really motivates me when I think about all the stuff that we're trying to do with regard to our footprint here at Tillamook, the collective dairy footprint, agriculture, and then all of industry and society. I mean, that's an inspirational closing. So I think we'll probably end there. Big thanks to Paul for that great conversation. Consensus and Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode is produced by Will Gatchel and Jeff Rock, executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker and strategist Patrick Gallagher. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And we'll see you next week.